For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. This episode was made possible in part by the generous support of the Tyndale House Foundation. For more information, visit tyndale.foundation. Southern is a bowl of shrimp paste, rich in butter, shrimp, sherry, spices, and lemon juice. Blended to a soft consistency and served over a plate of grits, a delicious breakfast treat. Southern is a barbecued pig that was cooked for hours and served with a tomato or vinegar-based sauce, as well as coleslaw, potato salad, baked beans, hush puppies, and iced tea. Southern is a bowl of homemade peach ice cream served during the peach season. Southern is Richard Wright and his bright and morning star. Southern is an oyster roast. Guests are presented with white gloves for shucking and pots of melted butter. Southern is leftover pieces of boiled ham, trimmed and added to a saucepan of heavy cream set on the back of the stove to mull and bring out the ham flavor, then spooned over hot biscuits with poached eggs on the side. This is glorious. And it just goes on like that. It's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) And people who get confused about, why would you want to read food writing? I I hope after (laughs) listening to Alyssa read this poetry, I hope that stirred something in you. I hope you became hungry. It should always make you hungry. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Imagine you're planning a dinner party. Not just any dinner party, but the dinner party to end all dinner parties. Serving a supper like it was your last. Locations locked in, menu set, every course is perfectly timed, themed, and you've got all the recipes from the amuse-bouche main course to the sauces, palate cleansers to dessert. I know I've got you hungry, but something's missing. Who's coming for supper? Who's tasting and seeing the goodness of this party? Whose salty presence will season the night, bringing out the very best of every flavor and every bite? And here's maybe the funnest part. Imagine you can invite anyone through history. Who would you have over for dinner? Who would sit at the table of your supper club? Well, Alyssa Wilkinson wrote a book that invited a revolutionary recipe of nine extraordinary women over for dinner to see what kind of insights might emerge. Ella Baker, Alice B. Toklas, Hannah Arendt, Octavia Butler, Agnes Varda, Elizabeth David, Edna Lewis, Maya Angelou, and Lori Coleman. Alyssa herself is a journalist and film critic and a senior correspondent at Vox Media. In this conversation, she and I talk about eating, drinking, being merry, but also being human. We join Hannah Arendt at a cocktail party to discuss views on friendship, love, evil, and difference. We get really hungry thinking and reading through the Southern food writer Edna Lewis, who brought Farm to Table to New York way before it was cool. And we discuss surely one of the best movies of all time, the gorgeous film Babette's Feast, which offers an imaginative and experiential education in the place of joy, pleasure, and recognition in a flourishing spiritual life. So thanks for coming to the dinner party. Bon appetit. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining me on For the Life of the World. Thanks for coming back on the show. Yeah, I'm so glad I could. It's been a while, but I'm excited to talk. Yeah, we're going to talk about salty. The spirit behind what we try to do on this podcast and in general 
at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture is appreciate the long shelf life mm. of ideas, mm-hmm. whether that shows up in books or culture or however those might be yeah. presented. There's a kind of there's a kind of long arc to the narrative. These yeah. stories that you're working on mm-hmm. in this book also, I think, can present themselves as having that kind of long maybe timeless shelf life. (laughs) I mean, that's the hope, right? (laughs) There are books that are pegged to, you know, elections or like cultural happenings or whatever. And that's great. And I admire the people who write those, but that is not me. (laughs) It's much more interesting to dip into people, I think, who knew something, who are no longer with us, but have us have something to teach us. But that's interesting. I mean, the use of writing as both inhabiting a moment and somehow like existing as far beyond and transcending that moment Mm -hmm. is kind of where so much delight comes. There's like a Mm -hmm. little bit of a paradox in that. Mm -hmm. That's that, that transcendent frame perhaps that helps to connect people in the moment and out of it. And I think I see that on display in the format of salty, but you're writing all the time and you're always trying to both inhabit the moment and get outside of it. That's right. I mean, it's also a scary proposition for journalists, whatever you write, is of the moment and it's sort of the record of the moment but like you realize when you're writing a book like this that 50 and 100 and who even knows how many how far into the future people will be looking at our writing not to give them information about that moment but to give them information about how people were thinking about that moment and so it feels like an extra responsibility which is like funny when you're when you're writing something like this uh, and dipping back into those old stories or the old kind of headlines and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the subtitle lessons on eating, drinking and living from revolutionary women. Mm -hmm. The the expression of it in lessons on eating and drinking and living, of course, Mm -hmm. but the genre of the book is it's experimental. You've got memoir, you've got cookbook, you've got biography, you've Mm -hmm. got, you can't help but be a critic still. Yeah. There's an element of theater in it and like philosophical dialogue at times. It's a yeah. cultural history, but it's it's still lessons mm-hmm. on eating, drinking, living. And so the, and there's recipes in it, of course. And so and illustrations, um, which I did like not the, provide. <laughs> well, those are those are they're and they're gorgeous though. and they're w- yes. really well done. And I mean, that's a nice treat that most academic types aren't mm-hmm. really privy to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to have their work illustrated yeah. so lovely. Yeah. So to talk a little bit about that genre. So I, I have been calling it an essay collection because that's what it feels like the most to me. And yeah. I did my MFA work in creative nonfiction. So we talked incessantly about essays and it's it's sort of a, a joke slash cliche among people who study creative nonfiction, but it's true that the word essay comes from the French word essay, which means to sort of ride out in pursuit of something. And so the idea behind the essay form is that you are kind of just watching a writer's mind at work and you're kind of following them down the path that they wish to lead you. I guess what I was trying to do was come up with ways into the lives of these women who I find interesting that would also be compelling to someone who had never heard of them. 
And I know for a lot of people who have picked up the book, they haven't, it's like half or more of them are unfamiliar names. Yeah, myself included. Yeah, it's not as if they're obscure people, but they're, they've flown under the radar. Maybe if you weren't in their field of study or something like that. You're sort of creating a compendium as well. Mm -hmm. You're curating as a kind of maven of women's intellectual history, even, or or activism in those cases as well. But a setting in this up as a dinner party, which you yes. do right yeah. away, I think is yeah. an important valence yeah. to your approach. Mm-hmm. And you are the hostess yes. with the mostess. <laughs> and so in that sense, you do have to bring yourself to the party, right. but a good host knows how to get out of the way mm-hmm. such that such that the guests create this kind of improvisational ensemble. Yeah that joins in with the food that like, I I see this as an act of intellectual and cultural hospitality on your part for, for the world. Mm -hmm. So you're setting the menu, Mm -hmm. you've paid careful attention to the guest list and, and then you just kind of see what happens. Yeah, exactly. And I sort of felt like I was seeing what happened for myself as a process of the writing. I went in with an idea of who I was writing about, but not always why they were there. And the good thing about the food and drink thing is that everyone eats, (laughs) right? Like food is a part of everyone's life. And so I knew that going into their lives, I would find something through that lens that would help me understand them and hopefully help the reader understand them. So for, I don't know, I think about half of the people in it, maybe, maybe four out of five are food writers or sort of known for a cookbook they wrote. Or in the case of Maya Angelou, like most people don't think of her as a food writer, but she did write two cookbooks. And so that's Mm. part of her story. But then there's other women in the book who were not at all known in connection with the food world. And I didn't intend to drag them in there. Instead, I wanted to use food or drink or or hospitality or something as Mm -hmm. our way into thinking about their lives. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those. I think one of those is... Hannah Arendt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is she at the party? Why, why don't you start there? <laughs> she's at the party in part because I just think she's really interesting. There's actually a little bit of a story as to why she's in there, which is that the real genesis of this book came at a, a, a wine night at the house of someone who was an instructor in my MFA program. And so we were talking about it. He does it sometimes. And he said, you should write a book called cocktails with Hannah. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, because they had these great cocktail parties. And that always stuck in my head as just kind of a fun concept for a book I would enjoy writing. And so I figured, well, where better to start than with her cocktail parties? (laughs) Anyone who's been in like a real New York apartment where it's like a little shabby, not really big enough for the number of people who are in it. And there are martinis and there are some canapes or whatever, but people are there mostly to yell at one another about ideas. And that really struck me as foundational to who she was and a lot of her writing and the way she thought about thinking, which for her was very much about being in conversation with others and with the self. And so I sort of used that cocktail party as a way into thinking about her ideas about friendship. Right. I want to talk a little bit about like, about Arendt's ideas and how the cocktail party is symbolic of that kind of, you, I mean, the, this chapter is a subversive feast among friends. Mm-hmm. You're, you're careful to point out the kind of evolving nature of Arendt's thought, mm-hmm. 
the difficulty of, of boiling her thought down and perhaps the importance of that difficulty as well mm-hmm. for her approach to ideas and Very thinking much. as conversation with the self. Mm-hmm. And so bring us into a little bit of the substance behind what that cocktail party, holding a drink in one hand and holding a conversation at the same time, what that contributes to your life and, and the, a, a good life. Right. Yeah. I think it's important to start by realizing that her cocktail parties were not like networking events, right? Or they weren't like seamy. So, so a common experience for me and many other people is you go to a cocktail party and you're talking to someone, but both of you are kind of looking over the shoulder of that person to see who else is in the room and whatever, which is so gross, but so common and so common in academic circles and media circles, for sure. Publishing. I mean, everywhere I spend my life. Or even in the business world, like you take a glance at someone's name tag, Uh size them up and then you're, you might've checked out already. So you're kind of presenting that in contrast. Yeah. That's not what hers are. Hers are definitely cocktail parties. Well, there's definitely cocktails that that's, that much is clear. (laughs) And, but they, they like many others in her circle were, were places where you were hashing out ideas. There was plenty of bickering and infighting and intrigue and all that stuff too. But there's this definite emphasis on arguing in order to find out what you think. And also to not come into agreement necessarily with other people, but be in the same space, having the same argument. And what she didn't, as far as I can tell from her writing, she didn't mean this sort of, I don't know, there's this sort of weak idea, I think, that floats around these days where it's like, you should have friends who have different, like, diametrically opposed viewpoints from yours. And she definitely did not think that because she also believes that your thoughts stem from your virtue, I think I would say, and that we can make judgments about that. But that you don't always know with finality what you think, or if you do, you're probably wrong. And that it is in conversation with friends and with the self that we actually do that thinking. And she literally thought that thinking, she described thinking as a conversation with the self, which I really like. But in her friendships, an emphasis is made in her writing on friendship only existing when you see and love the ways that your friend is different from you. And she really thought that love could only, and by that I mean kind of love writ large, could only exist in the specificity of relationship. So she would say things like, you can't say I love women (laughs) because you don't know all women. You could say you admire or care for or feel compassion toward a group of people, but you couldn't say that you love them. You can only love people. And so there was that real emphasis. And it's really borne out in her life. I cite a great book in there. It's called Hannah Arendt and the Politics of Friendship. John Nixon, I believe, is the author. And it goes through four of the most important friendships in her life, which included Mm -hmm. Martin Heidegger and Mary McCarthy. And she, well, the Heidegger thing is wild and I'm sure like very problematic for... Yeah, what to say. I mean, like the Nazi connection and being the the most important one. It stems from he was her professor and they had an affair when she was 18 and then she Mm -hmm. left and... And he was, she was horrified by his choices in life. And then Mm -hmm. she, but she never really stopped trying to figure out 
what was who he was, even when he seems like a very difficult man. So her friendship with Mary McCarthy started with three years of them basically hating each other, but showing up at all the same events. And then one night they got trapped on a subway platform in the middle of the night after a party, which is like a very relatable circumstance. And one of them said to the other, this is ridiculous. We think the same way about so many things. Let's just be friends. And then they were like best friends. You can go buy a volume of their letters to one another. Yeah. When Hannah died, Mary finished her last book, dropped her own work to finish it and publish it. What I love about how this is this expresses so much, the complicated nature of Aaron's yes. thinking is, is, I wouldn't say caused by, but it at least correlates with and and very likely is related to the complicated nature of her life. But this is to say, and then perhaps I'm breaking one of Aaron's most important rules, which is not to overgeneralize, <laughs> but this is perhaps expressive of, I think, what what is a, a universal of human life, mm -hmm. which is there's, there's ideas, but then there's the people behind those ideas and there's the lived experience right. that gives rise to those ideas. Yeah. I wanted to read a little bit from how you sum up some of her, her thinking in Salty you're speaking about her concept of amor mundi, love of, love the, of world. the world. Yeah. But you say loving the world means working on two specific tasks. The first is to doggedly insist on seeing the world just as it is with its disappointments and horrors and committing to it all the same. The second is to encounter people in the world and embrace their alterity mm -hmm. or difference. I, th I think when we say complicated, people are complicated or things are messy. I think this is one good way to add a little bit of coherence or clarity to the ideas that we're talking about. Yeah. Many forms of difference or mm -hmm. alterity that are constantly placing us in some form of tension or conflict with the other. Yeah. And so much emerges from, from that. So ideas, beliefs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. preferences, ways of being in the world all yeah. emerge from this encounter of difference and the mm -hmm. other. You know, the reason that was so resonant was in part because in my life, I feel like a lot of times I've encountered that in a meaningful way. I mean, not to rag on the internet, but it's not really on the internet <laughs> so much as mm. it is at somebody's dinner table. It really admires right. people who can put together gatherings where they know not everyone in this room is the same, <laughs> which requires like a lot of life work to get to that point. Right. But yeah, I mean, the, the, just the idea that I would, I would encounter and sort of understand myself through encountering and not just encountering, but like in a deep way in a relationship, an ongoing relationship with someone start to yeah. understand why I think the way I do, not in order to stop thinking the way I do, which is sometimes the way people I think use that idea, but rather to build it out, make it more robust. It's not just like a mm. slogan I heard in a class or something. It's something that like stems from inside of me and I can kind of articulate that. But you can only articulate it if you need to in order to be in relationship with someone yeah. else. And that's not possible with all people. Most people have heard of her concept of the banality of evil, this has gotten thrown around a lot. It's sort of one of those quotes that it's not exactly taken out of context, but the fuller context makes it a lot more interesting. So the, the mm -hmm. idea of the banality of evil, she doesn't mean that evil is boring exactly. She just means that you don't have to 
it, that evil doesn't come from people who present themselves as evil so often as from right. like true evil comes from nothing <laughs> from the good people who do nothing so part of that concept comes from just how she she fled the nazis um yeah. she she fled the holocaust and she herself jewish. she's jewish and she fled to the us along with many of her friends and they knew that the problem it was obviously very bad that there were people who were actively trying to harm them but the people who refuse to stand in the way of yeah. that harm are the ones you need to worry about and then she originally she goes and reports on this trial of Adolf Eichmann who's the architect of the final solution and she reports on it for the New Yorker and she writes back home, basically, this is not like the, this man is remarkable in his banality. <laughs> he's just he's just a bureaucrat. He's just like a guy. You yeah. don't look at him. He's not he's not Charles Manson. You don't look at him and think, oh, this guy like obviously architected the slaughter of millions of people. And this statement yeah. was hugely controversial to the point where it's almost funny now to see how uncontroversial it is when you when you sort of throw it around because it was yeah. she lost friends over this because people said well how how can you call him banal if he did all those evil things and i totally see the point it's just that if you sort of look at right where she's coming from you can also i hope see her point and i think it's really borne itself out in the 20th century that the people doing these wicked things often on large scales wicked leaders or whatever are not remarkable geniuses or or brilliant yeah. serial killer schemester types. They're just they just know how to grab an opportunity or are just doing yeah. what they're told. So that that whole thing is really interesting to me. But it's especially interesting because she did lose friends over it. There was a lot of argument about it. I think there's a robustness to her thinking about alterity and difference that is often lacking in like Facebook memes about how you should be friends with people who don't think the way you do. So yeah. there's a there's a bigger issue at stake there. And she coming from it, it's interesting because she wrote her undergraduate thesis on St. John and Augustine. She is mm. Jewish, mm -hmm. not particularly religious in adulthood. She argues with with John a bit actually in in her thesis, but but generally that's where her idea about love of the world comes from is actually trying to get around the idea that we can't love the world for her loving the world is seeing it in all its reality uh, and not looking away yeah not pretending you can erase reality in order that makes you uncomfortable or whatever yeah i mean it's so much of the i think the uh, the imaginative force of of what you're doing in this book is, is bringing us all together mm -hmm. across in this case time mm -hmm. as well as space it's irreplaceable Yes. The idea of, of bringing all that you are to, to a room, to a specific room, that if you want to know anything about the world, you won't find it through generalizations, a conceptual understanding, a propositional knowledge. You only get to knowledge, you only get to love through acquaintance, through yes. encounter. And that's where that, that like encountering difference, even if it's just a difference of, of particulars and not mm -hmm. necessarily a difference of kind. That's what yeah. we want our friendships to be a, a sameness of kind in some respects, mm -hmm. but there's still that, that reaching out into the world and moving into a particular space and encountering yourself mm -hmm. in those moments of opposition moments with the other it's life-giving yeah. and meaningful. And I think it's worth noting that 
for large stretches of her most important friendships, she was physically displaced from mm. the people who were her close friends, including McCarthy. Yeah. They were always kind of orbiting each other. And mm. it was really important to them to write letters. To, there's just like tons yeah. of letters from mid-century. And I love reading letters between close friends who don't see each other very much, but write these letters because there's this sort of sharing of the self, sharing of like anecdotes from your life, silly things that happened, saying, oh, I can't wait till we can see you. We're going to be in the city like three weeks from Monday. Will you be there? And also ongoing, long, years long, ongoing arguments about various ideas, or you pick up on things that they said to one another when you saw when they did see each other. Mm. And I think that's really spectacular way to get to know somebody is to read their letters much more than their biographies, I think, because you start to get a sense of their personality. Yeah. Yeah. Who should we talk about next? Well, one of my favorite people in this book is Edna Lewis. So maybe we can talk about Edna Lewis. So how did you come to know of Edna Lewis and why yeah. is she at your dinner party? See, I should have known about her before I did because I have always been a little bit yeah. of a cookbook hound. I Years ago, I was really into kind of the history of the farm to table movement in America, mm -hmm. Alice Waters and all this yep. stuff. I heard about her because the first, I think it was the first week of the pandemic, actually, um, mm -hmm. the New York Times podcast was having writers come on and read recipes, if I remember correctly. I, I think I remember that. Yeah. And Wesley Morris got on and read her biscuit recipe. And I was like, who is this lady? I want to know more about her. She sounds incredible. I started to realize that she was a really big deal that I didn't know about. And then I felt a little better because apparently there was an episode of Top Chef where... Hmm that was Edna Lewis inspired a few really? years back and almost nobody had heard of her. And that was really telling to me. So who was Edna Lewis? She was, she was the granddaughter of formerly enslaved people who founded a town for others from their community in Virginia called Freetown. And then she moved North after she finished high school and she lived in New York city for a long time. And then she kind of moved, she lived in the South and the North back and forth. Mm. She is the reason that Southern food is considered sort of the er American cuisine. <laughs> She's the reason anyone's eating Southern food outside the South. So she was cooking at a place called cafe Nicholson on the upper East side in the forties, I want to say, and now I'm doubting my dates, but it was, it was before the civil rights act and New York was not officially, but definitely pretty segregated. And she was right. cooking there and word kind of spread among the city's Southern celebrities, like the Truman Capotes of the world mm -hmm. that he was cooking Southern food. She became a partner in the business, which was like, it was unheard of that a black woman would be a chef, like a chef in a kitchen at the time in New York. She eventually left, but she ended up writing these cookbooks, one of which, The Taste of Country Cooking, sort of functions as a memoir of her youth in Freetown. And it kind of goes mm. through all the seasons and she'll have a recipe for plum jam or pickled something or like a pork dish. And then there'll be all these kind of reminiscings about life in Freetown, which she's kind of remembering yeah. her child's eyes. And this is all very... Mm interesting there's 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 recipes for certain holidays and like homecomings that would have been celebrated yeah. among the families in that community and emancipation day there's emancipation a day 
and noticeably lacking in a few holidays that you might have expected to see Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. I believe, and Independence Day. And and there's there's something there that's very interesting just in her kind of subtle it's it's about her youth, but it's it's the book is being sold to people who didn't experience her youth and just sort of the subtlety of what mattered to them. Yeah. And also there's some stuff about what it meant to be safe in that community. There may or may not be, but there seems to be some subtle evocation of what it was like to live near a place where lynchings had taken place in some of the imagery she uses. So it's it's a very smart and interesting book, but you can miss all that if you just read it and you're like, oh, look at this kindly lady writing about grits or whatever. And that's all really interesting, I think. And then in the end, that's the reason that Southern Southern food and her other cookbooks are the reason that Southern food is stopped being considered sort of food for what people might have prejudicially considered like poor or uneducated Mm -hmm. people. And so in a way, she pioneered the farm to table movement because that's what she cooked and that's what she advocated for. Mm -hmm. Um, And And that's what seems to be, I think that there are probably some that don't realize that that's what Southern cooking is really based on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we hear farm to table and we hear some kind of like nouveau, like hipster idea that this Mm -hmm. is like, that had never existed before, Mm -hmm. but we just were so imaginative to, yeah. to create it. It took high, fine chef <laughs> right. imagination to, to create, but no. No, it was no. like literally the farm was at your back door because that's how you ate. But it's mm. not even just Southern food. The less money you have, the more likely you are to have, at least at that period of time, to have done farm to table cooking, like just lived on it, right? Because yeah. that's I how mean, you Think about it. how farm to table encountered this kind of incredible rebranding from... <laughs> right. From like, we all received it as it became involved. We received it as the highest form or the hippest form, at least uh-huh. of how you would eat sort of like, that's going to be the most expensive kind of, exactly. kind of food that you would experience given. And I, and it's, it, it's lovely what they did. Uh, Alice Waters and Chez Panisse. Mm-hmm. But, it's went um, there recently, actually, and oh, it is very good. As, um. as a, as someone with Berkeley close to his heart, I miss it, but, so good. and I only went once, but, <laughs> but it, it definitely was not elevated cooking in its origin. Farm to table meant was born out of necessity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. because as you point out, the farm is just outside your door on the other wall from your table. It's economical. And something she also points out is for people in Freetown, the next town over was white and it was not necessarily safe for them to go shopping in the next town over. So you kept as much as you could close to Mm -hmm. home because it was safer and it refed the community rather than having to stretch resources out the door. And it was was a historical grounding for that. So it is, it's kind of a time-honored American tradition, but I think we get sometimes what can we say whitewashed ideas about what what that tradition actually is mm-hmm. and i think that that's that's really fascinating and she just she's just such an interesting lady also fascinatingly her recipes might have been the most modern of all of the recipes mm-hmm. that i looked at for the book she's yeah i mean you could buy anything well maybe not like rabbit but for the most part you can buy most anything in her cookbook at your local grocery store yeah. which is 
of recipe books written in the middle of the century, not so common. <laughs> yeah, perhaps it's not so easy. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about a little bit more about her distinctive Southern identity. Yeah. You say, Lewis defines Southern as the experience of an emancipated people and their descendants, a cultural and culinary heritage to be proud of, mm-hmm. a distinctly American culture. And as she offers definitions, readers are reminded she's refusing to be defined by anyone but herself. Yeah. Right. She wrote this article called What is Southern that for Gourmet Magazine, I believe, and it didn't get published before she passed away. And then they sort of found it in a stack and we're like, oh, we got to publish this. And it's this lovely, you can go look it up, Google it. It's out there. It's this lovely poetic sort of definition of what it is to be Southern. That's very much through her definition. I mean, you even hear in there that she's reclaiming Southern cooking for for black people in the South, right? Recently yeah. emancipated people. So it's it's very much about that. And that even is entirely correct. There's lots of community cookbooks from the South, from the antebellum period onwards, but most of them were white women using the, taking the recipes from their black chefs and sort of putting them in the community cookbook. And that was just accepted practice. And that's what people were doing. And probably putting their own name on it. And probably putting their own name on it. And sometimes putting really kind of, very disturbingly racist stereotypes in there too. <laughs> but that's where, that's what we think of, right? Of as, as Southern food. And certainly there are people who don't fit that mold or there are people who didn't, weren't wealthy enough to have help. But, you know, what became Southern food was defined by Black people, mostly Black women who were cooking. And that is now the food that America eats all the time. Yeah. You include a portion of that essay in the book. And I think you rightly say it reads like poetry. I'm wondering if you'd read it for us. Will you mind pulling it up? Yes. It's on page 21. Southern is a bowl of shrimp paste, rich in butter, shrimp, sherry, spices, and lemon juice. Blended to a soft consistency and served over a plate of grits, a delicious breakfast treat. Southern is a barbecued pig that was cooked for hours and served with a tomato or vinegar-based sauce, as well as coleslaw, potato salad, baked beans, hush puppies, and iced tea. Southern is a bowl of homemade peach ice cream served during the peach season. Southern is Richard Wright and his bright and morning star. Southern is an oyster roast. Guests are presented with white gloves for shucking and pots of melted butter. Southern is leftover pieces of boiled ham trimmed and added to a saucepan of heavy cream set on the back of the stove to mull and bring out the ham flavor, then spooned over hot biscuits with poached eggs on the side. It's just glorious. And it just goes on like that. It's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) And people who get confused about why would you want to read food writing? I I hope after listening to (laughs) Alyssa read this poetry, I hope that stirred something in you. I hope you became hungry. It should always make you hungry. But also, one thing I love about food writing generally is that it isn't just about your taste. It's also like your smell, the texture. Sometimes it's what you're hearing. I have like very clear memories of in the Little House on the Prairie books, which are some of the best food writing around. Laura's writing about eating, I think it was pig fat or something and hearing it squeak. (laughs) And this was as a child, Mm -hmm. this was like so evocative for me. So that's, that's what you hope for. So can we do one more? Yeah. Because I want to talk a little bit about Babette's Feast. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yep. (laughs) I'm still 
So, so much of, of, I think the experience of reading Salty, I mean, we, I started commenting on the genre, I think for an important reason. I think it's, it's, it's one of those instances where awareness of the genre as you read it feels like a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's, and I just, I, I appreciate the sense in which it, it becomes a kind of metaphor or the dinner party is a metaphor yeah. for an intellectual feast, mm -hmm. but not just merely intellectual. I, th I really do feel like the worlds of the intellectual and the cultural and the physical and the spiritual are kind of colliding in the spirit. And I think this is what dinner parties are all about. And I'll, yes. I'll offer it a little bit before I moved to Connecticut from California, I was part of a supper club with five other couples and we're all kind of in the same life life stage. And my wife, Lainey and I were invited into this supper club, which had been a long running supper club. It's been going for almost 20 years. In fact, it's called the Los Padres National Forest Supper Club. Amazing. And it is fine dining, but it's fine dining put on by very ordinary people who are not themselves chefs. And, and it was a kind of experiment in a temporary transcendence from the ordinary into extraordinary, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it was, you dress up to the nines. This was a, a black tie event. Amazing. And it, it became an important regulation. Several courses were required. A lot of study went into it. They were often themed, different themes. So we once put on a Kentucky Derby themed party. Okay. We did a we did Roll Doll, who is not well known for it, but was also a food writer. Did you have a chocolate fountain? And did anyone fall in? No one fell in <laughs> to it. No, and in, in fact, the invitations were chocolate bars that were homemade. Amazing! What a and and that's just that's just the start of it. There was there was, uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream was another theme that someone else put on. Only the good die young was another. <laughs> Wow. Now I, I could go on and on and on, but those are just some of the expressions in it. And here's a shout out to, let me just name Matt and Ashley and Chris and Layla. And I mean, really there's a community that formed uh, around it. Gavin, Rebecca, Juan and Christine. These are the people that were part of our tenure in hmm. the supper club. And a lot of other people have, have been there, but it's that movement from ordinary into extraordinary, right? Like you, you get babysitters for your kids and you you show up and I don't normally dress like this. I don't normally eat like this, yeah. but, but damn, just yeah. being there in this moment just opens up vistas of life and experience that makes sense for why food writing mm -hmm. and, and why a kind of intellectual for like a dinner party does give you lessons for living. Okay. This is so much about 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 life and it's yes it is a necessity as errant was about but it's but it's full of bounty and poetry mm -hmm. and and i think that's kind of encapsulated by this movie i've loved for a long time so i how could i have a conversation with you and not bring up at least one <laughs> one film the movie babette's feast yes. is just this i think it came into my life maybe a decade ago it, it just from one angle it's it's just slow and difficult to get through if you are used to a different kind of movie. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, once you start paying close attention to the way it's made, and of course, like the narrative that drives it, it's just astounding and it gorgeous. And once it starts, 
Yeah. Becoming extremely compelling suddenly, especially yeah. if you're hungry. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Why don't we segue with a little bit of Babette's Feast? Yeah. What, I feel like this is a connection for you too, I can tell. Yes. And so introduce a little bit and maybe we can just go ahead and say, hey, spoiler alert, everybody. You can <laughs> you can skip ahead if you want to see the movie first, but... It's from 1987 and I do feel so you've like... you've had some time. It, the spoiler's kind of in the title of the movie, I think. <laughs> it puts on a feast. It puts on a feast. So yeah, there's a... It's not metaphorical. Well, it is, but it's also literal. Yeah, it's actually it's so based... Much. On a Isaac Dennison story, which I yeah. at one point had thought of putting Dennison in the book, then I didn't, mainly because I wanted to talk about Babbitt's Feast. Also, weird fact, Hannah Arendt loved Isaac Dennison, so that was oh, interesting. interesting. But anyhow, yeah, I mean, it's the story of a woman who fled Paris under political circumstances that I don't really know what they were um yeah i mean they're fairly vague in the film yeah and it's in the it's set in the 19th century i believe and she kind of fled to this remote village on the coast of denmark and she was sent there by a man she doesn't kind of know why at first i guess we can leave some of this to the spoilers but she ends up working for these two sisters who are sort of just past middle age i would say and their father was this very stern Protestant minister who started like a sect or a church. I don't know. It, you know it's a remote village. It's sort of the only yep. game in town. Yep. And everyone who goes to this church at this point is quite old as well. Their father has passed away, but the community is still there. And it's a very stern, strict sect that, you know, issues worldly pleasures of all kinds. And they're very, they live a le- very ascetic lifestyle. And Babette bursts in and she's this like French woman who can, who cooks for the women. And she, she's sort of horrified by the food they have her make. Is bread soup in there? Am I remembering that correctly? It's like, maybe she's just everything. They're like, oh, this is what we eat. And she's okay. And she, but she's very kind and just grateful to be there and grateful to be safe. And so she does it and they, they come to love her. And she's sort of viewed with a little bit of suspicion by everyone, but you know, they, they get used to her. And then one day she finds out that she's won a lottery home in France and it's Mm -hmm. enough money that she doesn't need to keep working for the women and they're sad to lose her, but they understand. And they and she says, well, before I leave, I would like to cook you a dinner in celebration of your father's centennial birthday. I think it's something like that and invites the church over. So there's 12 people coming and she, they, she begs and she begs and they're like, oh, I don't know. We don't eat rich food or whatever. And she's no, just let me give this gift to you. This is all I've ever asked you for, for 15 years or something like that. So they, they relent and she spends her money to buy the food. And so like things start to arrive at the house. There's like tortoises and like little, (laughs) little tiny quail and like Great, well, I don't. I just think fun. they don't really know what they've agreed to. They have no <laughs> idea. Just... I don't think anyone could. And then in the end, you sort of simultaneously find out that she used to be a chef. <laughs> and also yeah. that she spent all of her money on this. So it's sort of a parable. She's And she can't leave now because she spent mm-hmm. her entire... But it's this gift that she gives. And meanwhile, the scene... Yeah. I think the scene where they eat the dinner is like one of the funniest scenes i've ever watched in a film where they're just they and they're like, like not supposed to be enjoying this but they're really really enjoying this <laughs> and then they have a little wine and none of them have yeah. had wine like 
in decades. And and then like some of the like long standing quarrels in the community start to be resolved as they sort of talk and they're yeah. sort of becoming merry. And there are other things that happen in the course of that, but that that's sort of the core of it. And I just I think it's it's a sumptuous movie to watch. I've just food has rarely looked so good on screen, especially in a movie from the 80s. I have to say the 80s were just like not good at filming food, but this this one's good. And yeah. I, I actually talked to someone. Was it you? I don't remember. Someone told me that they did <laughs> feast themed feast. That's pretty good. Probably not. It was not the, me. Okay. It's it, suddenly that seems like something you might do. Well, it's a, <laughs> it's, I don't know that they had the tortoise, but there's. Well, I found the menu. So let me, I'm going to read the menu. Yes. Here's what, here's what she served. And now I, I wish I could pronounce the French better. <laughs> I really wish I could. I'm All just right. going to butcher it. So I'm going to just go ahead and say it's a seven course meal that's served over a, a, a large portion of the film. Turtle soup served with amontillado sherry, buckwheat pancakes with caviar and sour cream, quail in puff pastry with foie gras and truffle sauce, mm. rum sponge cake with figs and candied cherries, assorted cheeses and fruits, and coffee with Vieux Marc Grand Champagne Cognac mm -hmm. to top it all off. But the process of going through this is a kind of, I mean, there's a, it's like recognition, like what you described in the, the experience of, of those who are stern and mundane, but also just don't appear to have a place for pleasure, an yes. understanding of pleasure yep. in the good life. Mm -hmm. They're invited into this room. In fact, I mean, it feels like sinful almost to yes. them, right? Yep. And I think this is fairly important because it's ultimately this comment on the role of joy and pleasure yeah. in in a spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And, but it's like this experiential, like this form of recognition and, and you see it on their faces. And I mean, it's however you want to criticize the acting of it, but like the wide eyes of these very understated and humble people <laughs> yeah. that are just like holding it down, holding down the joy, trying to, to stuff it, yeah. suppress it, yeah. repress it all. <laughs> but then there's this important, and I, You'll have to remind me about the plotline that brings that brings him there. But but there's a there's a kind of prince. Yes, it's important plot to the to the, the kind of the big reveal. Yes, I this is actually the piece of the story that always escapes me myself. But it it's something to do with him having been in love years earlier with with one of the daughters. And he's yeah. in the Swedish army or something like that. And the whole reason Babette even found them in the first place is that a opera singer had met the daughters as well many decades before. Mm. And when he met Babette and ate a meal at her restaurant and knew that she had to flee, he said, I know these people who will take you in. They're good. They're good people. And he probably thought like they could use a cook. The There's this parable aspect to Babette's feast that is really quite stunning especially when you consider this movie won i believe it won the oscar for best foreign language film yeah in in 1988 premiered at Cannes. Yeah. it was like a it's an important art film of the 80s but it's also kind of continued to resonate i think in part for me one reason i love it is that it feels like a cinematic adaptation of the supper of the lamb which yeah. is a book i love I do know that. Um, yeah. And, and just everything that's in that book kind of is in 
this movie as well, to the point where I don't know that the director, Gabriel Axelrod, had read The Supper of the Lamb, although it's very possible it was sold well. But yeah. you you would definitely believe it, <laughs> having watched yeah, it. Yeah, I feel like that's, I mean, I'm going to have to have you back on at some point to talk about Robert Fire kept on Supper of the Lamb because it's, I mean, incredible book. Yeah, it's it deserves its own yeah its own thing. But I mean, I think the interesting thing here that's kind of representative of, I mean, it was when I heard you were, I didn't know, I, I thought you might go at least re- reference it in the book, but it was my first thought like, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. I heard you were doing a food book. Yeah, well, I thought about doing. I wanted to do kind of a book that was an homage to that. There yeah. are people who do that, but I. Yeah figured some some people who'd never been read were first on my it. I think that's important but I feel like so much of what food can what food does to an individual and which is expressed in the faces of all those humble people of Jutland Denmark is is recognition yeah and the ability of food to to bring that so close to home for someone this famous general who mm-hmm. somehow ends and he and he's dressed to the nines and he shows up in this humble coastal community. And the whole way through, he's remembering that this meal he had at a famous Cafe Anglais in Paris. Mm-hmm. And he is, and he's commenting the whole way through. And he's almost giving those people permission to enjoy yeah. the meal. Yeah. And he's, and he's, but it, and it comes through this kind of incredible experience where he's, he's having an existential moment throughout yes. the entire meal. They're kind of weirded out by it. At, at least at first, to me, it seems they can't even taste it. They don't know what they're tasting. Yeah. And th- but they're almost educated in how to taste, and mm-hmm. thereby educated how to live mm-hmm. a little bit more by this man who understands what it is to to how to taste things. Yep. And and it's and there's beautiful. I mean, it's mystical at some point. And I mean, he there's like amazing moment where he he quotes from the Psalms. It's, it's recognition. And yeah. I think this is an important thing that you're doing in the text, like bringing recognition to these, some of them unknown, or at least they should be better known, better sung, the unsung heroes of women and food writing. Yeah. And also, I think there's that educative element, the idea of learning how to, I think what they all teach us is learning how to appreciate those things like that we encounter those sort of ordinary Mm. things Mm -hmm. so the ones who cooked were cooking ordinary food but helping sort of educate on how to pay attention yeah maybe maybe we wrap with just one last question Mm -hmm. before we go Uh, how has this changed the way you eat or think this process of trying to gather a dinner party of revolutionary women who do that revolutionary work in various ways through the 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 subversive practice of preparing, cooking, eating, and celebrating a meal. Yeah, I feel like I took away a little bit of something from every one of them, uh, whether it was the, in the chapter on Elizabeth David, I'm talking about her kind of calling up memories of better times in her life while she's writing about food as in kind of a bulwark against the cold or thinking about mm-hmm. Ella Baker and how she believed that to have a just world, we have to perform the just world and that a lot of that work Mm -hmm. happens around dinner tables and all of these different things. So there were a lot of pieces. And in the end, it's funny, 
you kind of write a book and you don't, you kind of know what it is, but then you get to the end and you're like, oh, that's what that was. Right. And I, I wrote it and my husband helped me edit it. And then the day it came out, he celebrating and he pulled out the book and he read his favorite, a couple of his favorite bits. And then he was like, I don't think I realized you were writing a book about hope. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I yeah. don't think I realized that either. So weirdly, I feel like what I actually walked away from the book with was less about food itself or entertaining mm. itself, although those are all important elements, but more about how this feeds into a practice of hope, especially mm. in dark times, although not only in dark times and what mm. the elements of hope are. They don't, they don't involve, like Hannah Arendt would teach us, they don't involve closing our eyes to reality, but they don't involve locking ourselves into little rooms and just tweeting furiously, right? Yeah. They involve like meeting with friends and talking. They involve performing the just world. They involve, in Alice Toklas's case, being being an artist when we approach our work and not being ashamed of that as if it's not important enough for us to care about, even though it's just a platter of fish for lunch or something like that. Yeah. So, and and I think all of those pieces really came together for me in this chapter on Elizabeth David, who in the midst of a very cold and horrible winter during the just post-war austerity period in England. She'd been living in the Mediterranean for eight years. She'd returned kind of miserable (laughs) English food, never the best cuisine (laughs) on earth, but like really bad at the time. And she was remembering like Italy. So she started in kind of a state of, well, what else am I going to do eating like bone and gristle? She starts writing about Mediterranean food and it's the catalyst for any if you eat Italian food in England, it is in part because of people like Elizabeth David and in part because mm-hmm. of people who brought their cuisines with them and said, you can eat this and this isn't suspicious. This is this is good for you. So that that's like an act of hope. Mm-hmm. And I think thinking about writing as an act of hope was important while I was writing this book because of when I wrote it. And so when I have a dinner party now, which I've had a few, it's really kind of wonderful to have that reflection and that thing memorialized for me that every dinner party is an act of hope that's awesome great way to end Alyssa thanks for being on the show thank you Evan is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured Alyssa Wilkinson, production assistance by Liz Vukovic, Macy Bridge, and Kaylin Young. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu, where you can find past episodes, articles, books, and other educational resources that help people envision and pursue lives worthy of our humanity. If you're new to the show, remember to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And to our loyal supporters and our faithful listeners, just a simple, humble request. Would you mind telling a friend or share an episode? Here's a few ideas for what you could do. You hit the share button for this episode in your app and text it to a friend or send an email or put it on your social feed. Or you can give us an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. These are really cool because it helps you express in your own words what you get out of the show and why others like you might find it meaningful too. Thanks for listening, friends. We'll be back with more soon.